My dear sisters, today I have the deeply unsettling and the profoundly joyful task of talking to you about the events of the night before and the early morning of Jesus's crucifixion. This is a humbling talk, and I'm really grateful for the prayers of the sisters as I was working out what to bring you tonight. I'm not going to be going into any gruesome details, but I hope that you will see and you will feel deeply the love that God the Father and Jesus' Son have for you. And you in particular, not y'all of a type of you, but by Jesus becoming your sin and taking on the entire wrath of God so that you can have an eternal relationship with him. One that begins when you accept this work that he did on your behalf. The passage I'm going to be talking about is Mark 14, 66 through 1532. And I'm going to read it in chunks as we explore what God is saying to you. I'm going to be using the New Living Translation. Now, remember from last week, Pam Baird told us about Jesus's trial before the high priest Caiaphas, ending with the declaration that he, Jesus, was God a message that the high priest at least understood. We begin with events that were happening at the same time as the trial inside, and I'm going to read. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth, but Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. Just then, a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this man was definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you're a Galilean. And Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Suddenly Jesus's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. This story about Peter, which remember, we think was related directly from Peter to Mark himself, shows Peter as a real human being, a combination of love, repentance, courage, fear. And it also shows up the great contradictions of what's going on in the world at this point. Mark's gospel has this story in emotionally vivid terms, even given the few sentences that he used to write it down. Peter, who had firmly said at dinner he would never deny Jesus and who had taken up a sword and struck out at one of Jesus's captors and then ran away, leaving Jesus alone, was strong enough to conquer his fear. He goes into Jerusalem. He he goes into the belly of the beast, as it were, to the very place where Jesus is on trial. What did he hope to accomplish there? Was he already ashamed that he reacted violently and then ran away? Did he want to support Jesus? Did he want to know what was going on with his dear teacher, the one that he had called the Christ, 
the son of the living God. Even after a woman recognizes him and calls out to the other bystanders, he only moves out to the entrance. He doesn't leave the scene completely. He heard the rooster, but he didn't yet remember Jesus's prophecy. This woman starts circulating in the crowd, trying to whip them up to react to her identification of Peter. But Peter stands his ground. He stays in the entryway. Is he afraid now that he'll be presumed guilty if he runs away? But he does keep talking because a man recognizes his Galilean accent. And this time in denying uh, denying that he knows Jesus, Peter draws down a curse on himself, showing himself to be one of us. Peter turns away from Jesus, calling down a curse for this separation from him, just as we in our sin are cursed as we turn away from Jesus. But unlike the case of Judas, Peter's story doesn't end there. As Peter remembers Jesus's prophecy about what Peter would do on this night, Jesus had already intervened to stop the curse that Peter utters, although the prophecy about what, through the prophecy of what Peter would do, which the spirit brings to Peter's mind at a crucial moment. Peter accepts his sin and he repents, something that Judas was apparently incapable of doing. Meanwhile, as the section began, Jesus's prophecy of earlier in the night, while Jesus's prophecy of earlier in the night, that is the prophecy of, of Peter denying him, was being fulfilled Jesus was inside being mocked for being a false prophet. He's inside asserting his true identity as God, while Peter has lost his identity, temporarily, thankfully. He says the last three years of his life didn't really exist. We know that Peter was redeemed, as Mark later records when the angel speaks to Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome at the tomb. Go tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. John gives a full story of this redemption of Peter as Jesus speaks to him privately on the shores of of Lake Galilee, restoring him to the place that Jesus had already chosen for him as a rock of the early church. Jesus is now going to be brought out of the house of the high priest, to Pilate. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council, that is the Sanhedrin, met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, they led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now Mark is not referring to a second meeting of the Sanhedrin, But he's using his sandwich technique again to try to bring the events of this chaotic night into some kind of order for the reader. His mention of very early in the morning is to try and capture perhaps the illegal nature of the trial, which was not supposed to be held at night. Jewish trials were not supposed to be held at night. But the the rulers need to get Jesus to Pilate before they can start making their own preparations for the Passover. 
Talk about straining out a gnat to swallow a camel. They're concerned with ritual purity while they are illegally deciding how best to carry out a death sentence against the Son of God. Mark is showing us the pivot point of all human history in this dawn. This is the moment when all human history changes permanently. Now, it's Mark's contention that the entire Jewish establishment at this point has turned away from Jesus's claim to be the son of God. We're going to hear later about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who returned to bury Jesus, but we we actually don't know if they were part of this trial. That's not Mark's point here. Instead, he wants to make the reader exquisitely aware that Jesus has now been deserted by his disciples, by Peter, all of his followers, and the religious establishment. He will turn to, Mark will turn to the secular establishment next in order to show how the entire world rejected Jesus. Mark needs to explain to his Western readers how and why the Romans got involved in the sentencing of Jesus to death. So he's going to go, he's going to actually compress some of the information that we know from other gospel writers in order to make clear how the Romans got involved. We're told that the chief priests wanted to bring Jesus to Pilate in order to alert the authorities about what they were doing and to ensure that Jesus would be put to death in the most humiliating and public way possible in order to fully crush this movement among his followers. They don't realize, of course, that they are fulfilling prophecies that had been made hundreds of years before. For instance, one in Psalm 69, 8, I am a stranger to my brothers and alien to my own mother's sons. And he was scorned by men and despised by people in Psalm 22, 6. He was despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53, 3. The chief priests could have had Jesus sent out of the city to be stoned. Yet remember that they are afraid of the crowds that had gathered for the Passover, and they may have been afraid that such a move would have resulted in a riot and the disturbance of the rituals for Passover, especially if the Romans intervened. Besides, a stoning would not have been as public a stoning which they which was the normal uh punishment for blas- blasphemy as we saw with Stephen as we'll see with Stephen so the stoning would not have been quite as public nor would it have been a complete repudiation by all authorities both religious and secular and it wouldn't have fulfilled the prophecies made about the manner of Jesus's death Now, only one trial before Pilate is recorded in Mark, but Luke confirms for us what we know about Pilate from other ancient sources. He's cowardly, he's unjust, and he's quick to punish anyone who got him angry. Jesus is brought to Pilate at dawn, but Pilate tells the group who brings him that Herod Antipas, who is the ruler of Galilee, must decide what to do. Probably 
uh, all of this is happening in Herod's palace in Jerusalem anyway, because the Roman procurators had no palace in Jerusalem. They were based in the city of Caesarea on the coast. And so they would have only, they would have used, probably used Herod's palace when they came in for their stays in the city. Herod, we are told, also passed the buck, deciding that this issue was too hot for him to handle. So he sent Jesus back to Pilate. As I said, all of this can be found in the Gospel of Luke. It's uh, Mark is compressing this because he wants to focus on the role of the Romans and especially Pilate. Pilate had been made procurator or governor of the province in 26 AD. And by the time he met Jesus, he had already acted in ways that showed that he was quite willing to offend the Jewish population. In Jesus's trial, he may be calibrating how much else he could or should do. Now, by Roman law, he was responsible to the legate of Syria. That is, that was his the person that he reported to. But that man was largely absent from the region, leaving Pilate unexpectedly less supervised than any other procurator in Judea uh, before or after Pilate. This meant that he was used to making decisions on his own without any supervision. As an instance of his very uh, complex, but uh, let's say his difficult relationship with the Jews, Pilate brought legionary flags. Now, remember, these are things that the uh, legions carry that have the images of the emperor on them, and they are used by the legions to worship the emperor, we think, daily. So he brings these things that have images of human beings who are worshipped into the middle of Jerusalem. And only at the last second, after people... Uh, rioted. He rounded up rioters and only at the last second was he persuaded not to kill the many Jews who had opposed this action. Now, besides the insurrection of Barabbas, Luke 13, 1 mentions another uprising. And we actually don't know how many such violent outbreaks there were during his time as procurator. Jews protested sometimes fatally as his decisions as as procurator. As we know from the New Testament, it's very likely these are not the only only, uh, ones that happened. Although he, he, that is, Pilate, allowed some local control to be in the hands of the Sanhedrin, by Roman law, he was supposed to maintain order in the province. He was also ordered to appoint the high priest. And for good measure, to keep the high priest under control, he kept the high priest's clothing, the priestly clothing that he would wear during rituals in the Antonia Fortress, which was attached to the Temple Mount. That is, he kept the Romans in control of these Jewish ritual garments. So Caiaphas had to go to Pilate every time he wanted to appear in his high priest robe. That just shows how much interaction there was between Caiaphas and Pilate. Josephus also records that Pilate raided the temple treasury in order to pay for an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. And it appears he could not have done this without the cooperation of the Sanhedrin, or there would have been terrible riots. 
and we didn't hear that there were any. Pilate also, like his predecessors, kept one man, unlike, excuse me, unlike his predecessors, kept only one man, that is Caiaphas, as high priest during the whole time he was in office, which shows a very strong working relationship between this high priest and Pilate and helps perhaps explain a little bit about what's going on here beyond the fact that this is all happening according to God's plan. We can only follow Pilate a few years after Jesus's trial. He ordered the killing of Samaritans that was shocking, even by Roman standards, about two years after Jesus's death. And because of this, he was recalled to Rome for a trial. But the emperor Tiberius actually died before Pilate's ship landed in Italy. We don't know if Pilate was ordered to resign in disgrace or if he simply retired. There is one tradition that he committed suicide, but there's another tradition that he became Christian. The best answer is that Pilate fades into history just two years after the trial of Jesus. At the second trial, then, we see Pilate playing the angles, figuring out what would get him out of this potentially volatile situation in the easiest possible way. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. Then the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all the charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. So right away, we see that the charges that Jesus was brought up on in front of Pilate are quite different from those he was originally accused of. While Jesus was first accused of threatening to tear down the temple and then asked if he was the Jewish Messiah, Pilate wouldn't care about these issues. In fact, four years before the start of the first Jewish war, the one that ended with the destruction of the temple, so again, this is after Jesus's lifetime, but there was a certain man who was named Jesus ben Anianus. Uh, uh, Anianus sorry, um, Jesus is a very common first name. So he's running around Jerusalem predicting the destruction of the temple. The Romans arrested him for disturbing the peace, but then they simply whipped him, decided he was a madman, and let him go free. Now, as, as I said, admittedly, this happened after Jesus's death, but it's clear that the Sanhedrin is terribly conscious that the Romans could inflict any type of punishment or no type of punishment. Whatever they wanted to do, they could do. So the Sanhedrin thinks that they just can't afford a lesser punishment to happen. They turn their charges into something that Pilate would care about, the proclamation of being a king and thus inciting an insurrection and other unrecorded crimes of many stripes, probably all of which had would have had something to do with maintaining public order. Why did Jesus choose only to answer the charge of being king of the Jews? His answer can be translated as, that's what you say, or is that what you say, or you've said it. And apparently, his, his answer is ambiguous even to Pilate, 
because Pilate keeps the trial going, hearing of the other charges that are brought. Now, Mark is establishing a pattern here. In both the trial before the Sanhedrin and the trial before Pilate, many charges are brought, and Jesus answers them with silence. This evokes a certain amount of surprise in the questioners who ask him why he's silent. But when he is asked directly about his self-identification, then he answers. In both trials, the leader of the group consults with a larger body, the high priest with the Sanhedrin, Pilate with the crowd, as we're going to see in a second. A verdict is rendered, and then Jesus is mocked and tortured. We're going to see that Jesus is treated absolutely the same by both the Jewish and the Gentile, that is the non-Jewish, authorities, with the only difference being the framing of the charges. Mark is having us think about a prophecy made long ago by Isaiah in the part where the prophet tells the people about of Israel about the suffering servant who will come. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open up his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open up his mouth. That's Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. Now, at this point, the scene must shift slightly, although it's very common to have spectators at Roman legal proceedings, just like today. It appears that the earlier part of the trial was occurring just between the procurator, Jesus, and his accusers. It wouldn't, it would not have been happening inside the house, though, because we're told by John that the accusers did not want to come into a non-kosher house before Passover in order to make sure that they were not ritually unclean and thus unable to celebrate the Passover. But the next scene happens before a group of people. Now, this group is generally called a crowd, but by their actions, we understand they must have been Jewish. We don't know if they were specifically rounded up by the priests to witness the judgment of Jesus, although this does seem likely, since Jesus, remember, was popular enough that the Sanhedrin did not want to arrest him during the Passover celebration because they were afraid of the crowds. So perhaps the crowd here was handpicked to be hostile to Jesus. It also seems likely that the crowd must have come into the courtyard of the place where Pilate was staying, since we're not told Jesus was transferred anywhere else again. Um, besides, the trial hadn't finished since Pilate hadn't rendered judgment yet. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews? Pilate asked, for he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priests stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? 
and they shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Pilate could have simply dismissed the charges or, as happened later, told the soldiers to whip the insurrectionist and release him. But he chooses another path, one that will show us plainly that Jesus has now been deserted by everyone and he has started becoming the ransom paid for my sin. We don't otherwise hear of this custom of releasing a prisoner at Passover but it does fit what we know with about Pilate. You had already picked up that Barabbas was indeed guilty of the crime for which he was accused and was involved in a case that really was treason against the Roman state. He may have been a zealot, one of the Sicarii or daggermen who would murder Roman soldiers in an attempt to bring down Roman control over Judea. But his name connects him to me. I am Barabbas. In Aramaic, his name means son of the father. So we have a son of the father who is innocent, but will be put to death as a guilty person. We have the son of a father who is guilty, but because Jesus is substituted for him, he's released as an innocent man. Pilate asks the crowd a leading question, and perhaps the crowd is thinking that they would rather have a human who could really lead a revolt, or maybe they don't think Jesus is the right kind of Messiah, or maybe they're just the type of crowd who will follow the orders of the priests and shout for the judgment, the punishment of Jesus. There's no real logic to the decision of the crowd when a pilot says, why should I do it? They don't give him an answer. But as one commentator put it, this may have been a natural reaction of sinners in the face of the living God. Pilate quails here too in the face of the living God. He actually refuses to pass judgment on Jesus and he tries to weasel out of it until he can't. He bears as much responsibility as does Judas, as does the Sanhedrin, as does the crowd, but I also bear responsibility. If I hadn't sinned, Jesus wouldn't have come to earth to solve my problem of facing the living God. If it weren't for me, Jesus wouldn't have been condemned. I'm not going to go into the details of flogging, which was a horrifying first part to the sentence of crucifixion. Sometimes people died from the flogging alone, but that wasn't God's plan for Jesus. However, the torture is not yet finished. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire cohort. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again, and then they led him away to be crucified.
Now, these soldiers were probably part of the detachment that Pilate had brought to Jerusalem as a bodyguard, since they are in the courtyard. Since the word used that Mark uses is cohort, he says the entire cohort was brought up. It might mean up to 450 men were there, but that would be a pretty huge courtyard. So it's likely that Mark simply means a company, maybe 50 or so men. Now, Mark is writing for a Western audience, remember, and they weren't as familiar with having soldiers in their provinces. Judea was one of the very, very few provinces in the Roman Empire where soldiers were permanently stationed. And so except for the body, except for the bodyguard, the emperor, which they would have seen only if he was there. Now, he Mark doesn't need to be exact. He just wants to make sure that you understand this was not the work of one or two rogue soldiers. The entire Roman establishment is now participating in the mocking of Jesus. They apparently find an old military cloak in their barracks, which would have been reddish purple. And they put that around his shoulders after they had stripped him of his own clothes to make sure they humiliated him to the last. Twisting together a thorn branch, they made a crown that mimics a radiant crown, a crown that looks like rays of sun are coming out of the emperor's head. Emperors wore this type of crown when they wanted to emphasize that they were the son of a god. Now, Mark is not sparing the Romans here at all, even though he may even be in Rome, as he writes. The early Christian fathers bring out the intense ironies of this passage, beginning with the mockery of the true king of the Jews. Although the Romans spit on him in derision, Jesus had previously used his own spit to heal man's eyes, for instance. But again, all of these events were foretold. Although Mark doesn't refer to the prophecies in the Old Testament, we can look at Psalm 22. I was scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. And then Jesus was taken out of the praetorium to the place where he would be crucified outside the city gates as is normal Roman procedure. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus's cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, and they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Now, when Jesus is being brought out of the praetorium and to the place of the skull, He must have been able to pass close enough by the Temple Mount to hear the priest singing praises to God as he sacrificed the Passover lambs. Simon, who was from the African city of Cyrene, must have been in the area for Passover celebration. We don't know why Mark points out his sons unless they were well known to the Western church. It, I think the mention of them here implies that their father brought home his faith in Jesus and his sons became believers as well. Mark must have been writing this gospel in the lifetime of these two men, as he expects his readers to know who he's talking about. Cyrene is a multicultural, was a multicultural city in North Africa. It's possible that Simon, 
was the first black African who is named as an important part of spreading the good news of Jesus. The second one being the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip meets in Acts 8. We do know that the people of North Africa became deeply rooted in Christianity at a very early stage, and the area produced some of the most powerful thinkers in the early Christian church. In any case, the story of Jesus's work on the cross is meant for all nations, and by helping Jesus carry his cross, Simon shows the far-reaching impact of Jesus's message. So Jesus is brought to a rocky knoll outside of the ancient city walls. He's offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he will not drink it because this is a mild form of a sedative, and he wants to face his work on the cross with his entire mind clear. It's very likely that a Jew is offering him this, and I would love to think that this is one of the women who'd followed him to his execution ground. A crucifixion was regarded by the Romans as being so cruel that a Roman citizen was not allowed to be crucified. Yet it was the death predicted for our Savior hundreds of years before the Romans invented this form of torture, as we hear in Psalm 22. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Now, usually there would be no guard over a crucified man, in part because the torture was meant to last for days. But clearly the Romans knew something was different about this man on the cross. For they not only stationed guards here, but even a centurion, as we'll hear later. The equivalent of a modern captain is assigned to watch to make sure no one rescues Jesus. And again, we see the irony here because we were told during Jesus's temptation in the desert that he could have summoned legions of angels to help him, which would make a few Roman guards look pretty pitiful. But from the other side of the cross, we know that Jesus will not call upon a heavenly army to save himself because he must die to save us. Mark is again stressing the time of day. So much has happened between early morning and 9 a.m., Jesus has been tried at least four times. He's been mocked. He's been struck by two different groups of people, flogged, and then brought to the site of his death. Besides nailing him onto the cross, the Romans put up one more piece that they think is mockery, but which we know is the truth. A sign that reads, King of the Jews, in several languages, making sure that all who see it know, uh, they, all who see it can read about this. The sign that this sign tells us that Jesus was executed for being an insurrectionist. Pilate had agreed with the charges brought to him by the Sanhedrin. Without quoting the Old Testament, Mark wants us to dive back into the prophecies of Jesus's death to remind us that nothing that happened on that day was not foreseen, not known, not planned. In Psalm 22, we read, a band of evil men has encircled me. 
They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. We're even told by John that this gambling to see who will win the robe of Jesus occurred only because he was wearing a type of robe made in Galilee and nowhere else. Even the robbers next to him were not treated this way, but God knew that this would happen. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. He said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then save yourself. Come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were with it, who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. So Jesus is placed up high to make it even harder for anyone to rescue him. This may not have been normal procedure, but the Sanhedrin would have been satisfied as it makes Jesus's punishment that more public, that more prominent. As also normal Roman procedure, this execution takes place on a major roadway into the city to make sure that everyone knows what the consequences were for insurrection. And so there are going to be a lot of passers-by here. They're coming into the city to prepare for the Passover. Remember how James and John asked to sit at the right and the left hands of Jesus when he was in his kingdom? Here we have nameless insurgents on his right and his left hands. The disciples who asked to be there have fled. Again, Mark is making sure to record this so that you know the prophets also foretold this. Isaiah said he was assigned a grave with the wicked. We can also see the irony here as Jesus is called an insurrectionist. He's killed beside other insurrectionists. But as he kept trying to tell people, his kingdom was not of this world. He is not what they thought him to be. In fact, he was much more. People seemed to come out of the city in order to mock Jesus. While the Romans thought of him as an insurrectionist, the Jewish mockers returned to the accusation that he was going to destroy the temple. It's clear, though, that they have also heard some stories about Jesus's miracles as they tell him to perform one last miracle and get himself off the cross. Did the teachers of the law hear themselves? Did they really believe that he had saved others? Did they really understand that he had performed miracles? If so, why would coming down from the cross convince them now that he was the Messiah? God knew what the human reaction would be when faced with this unbelievable situation that the son of God, who is sinless, who will judge the world, he was condemned as a criminal and a rebel. He was judged by the people he was trying to save, and he became sin in order to keep God's wrath from us. God knew what would happen, as he had told his prophets long ago. People stare and gloat over him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. 
I'm going to have to stop there, but this is a good place to meditate on what drove Jesus to the cross and our own reactions to it. Mark has shown many different kinds of reactions that happened, and we can have we can have to this uh, central we can add to the central fact of Jesus's life. We we can deny that we know him in the face of fear. We can run away and never look at him on the cross. We can accuse him of wanting to change our way of life. We can accuse him of wanting to set up his kingdom in our hearts against our will. We can refuse to believe that he can save us. Or we can fall to our knees and truly worship him, the king of the Jews and the redeemer of the world. Well, let's pray. Jesus, we see in Peter a dim reflection of what we often are, paralyzed by fear into denying you. But we rejoice that you know us as fully and as intimately as you knew Peter then. You know our thoughts, know our words, our deeds. And yet we can still wonder at the forgiveness you extend even when we deny you. We thank you that you have intervened in that curse that we call down upon ourselves. And we pray that we, like Peter, will repent of our sins, but know that when we do, you will restore us in a relationship with you. You will go before us into our own Galilee. You'll find us there and you'll remind us that you love us. We thank you, Jesus, for the lonely road that you took knowing that you would be deserted by everyone, knowing that you would be mocked, tortured, and killed. We thank you that you chose this road from your own free will, knowing that it would lead to my salvation. We marvel that all the evil of that day was turned to good. And to quote the psalmist, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I pray that you make it real, new, and fresh, each day in my heart. By a mercy too wonderful to comprehend, you accepted the evil intent of my heart and turned it into a way to save my life. I can only whisper thank you and listen for the amen of my sisters. <laughs>